With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the ninth episode of my show. We have a really timely topic today. You know, I'm really excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues and highlight current issues that truly need to be discussed more to help reduce breaches and security incidents and also to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. Now today, we are going to talk about hacking. What comes to your mind when I say hacking? What comes to your mind when I say hacker? Well, it's likely very different for each of you, and it certainly is considered differently by well-respected information security pros. Basically, hacking as it relates to communication systems, computer systems, and other digitized systems is about defeating the controls established for the systems or exploiting vulnerabilities within the systems to get to places that those who own and manage the systems would really rather not have you access. And also to do things that you weren't intended to be able to do. Now, one of my favorite examples of an early hacker is that of John Draper. And you say, well, who's John Draper? Well, in the late 1960s, He used a toy whistle that came from a Cap'n Crunch cereal box to hack the AT&T phone system. Now, this whistle emitted a tone at 2600 hertz, which happened to be the same tone that AT&T used to reset its phone lines. Simply put, when Draper blew the whistle into the phone, the communications equipment heard that 2600 hertz sound. And on one end of the trunk line, or called the communication participant, was closed. However, the other end of the communications trunk, the call originator, was kept open. And the person on that end of the line was now considered by the phone system to be the official telephone company operator, meaning the person emitting that 2600 hertz whistle from that Cap'n Crunch whistle could call anywhere free of charge, meaning free long distance calls, right? Now, to those of you who have never had to worry about long distance charges because you've always used cell phones with packages 
that do not charge extra for such calls. This may not be such a big deal. But think about it. In the days of landlines, extra charges would be applied for long distance, which could then be used for calling, you know, just to the next town. Imagine that. If you wanted to call just to the next town, oftentimes it would be long distance or even across a county line. And those extra charges could add up to hundreds of dollars on your monthly bill if you weren't keeping your calls short. So here we have someone who figured out how to defeat a vulnerability within the phone systems, building upon some of the known past experiences of others, such as a guy called or named David Condon, who used a Davy Crockett cat and canary bird call to manipulate phone circuits a few years earlier to make uh, different types of calls. Now, here's an important point. Those at the phone companies had not even thought about people doing such activities to get into their systems to manipulate the system in this way and make free calls. In fact, they did not even realize that this was a vulnerability within their systems. But this is a great example of how a complex communications system, the U.S. telephone system of the 1950s through 70s or even possibly a little bit beyond, had a weak point. It had a vulnerability that allowed people to, if, if they knew the specific tone and accompanying tool to use, could work the system to get free long-distance calls. Now, the early hackers of generally all types of computer and communication systems were largely seeing if they could find and then exploit vulnerabilities largely to figure out how the systems worked. Malicious or criminal intent in many of these early instances really were not the goal. But wow, has has that now changed for a significant subpopulation of hackers who are now exploiting vulnerabilities in systems, networks, and applications for their own personal gain, political goals, or simply to cause bad things to happen. Now we have both malicious and non-malicious hackers poking at and trying to break into systems, some out of curiosity, some for malicious purposes, some to help find those vulnerable points. I want to point out just a few specific hacks or um, claimed hacks. Just consider in May of 2015, it was widely reported that a security analyst claimed to have discovered a way to hack through that entertainment console that you see on planes, for those of you that you know are on planes that have those on the back of the seats. He claimed that he could hack through those controls to gain access and, per his claims, take over the plane controls to make it fly sideways. Well, in December of 2015, in a different type of hack, Russian hackers broke into Ukraine's power grid and they took substations offline, taking the electricity away from over 230,000 residents, along with taking the power from those grid operators who had to figure out 
what was going on. The power was out from one to six hours, depending upon the locations, before the grid operators were able to restore power. Grid security and privacy is actually an hour is actually an area that I've been working in since 2009, and and I've uh, been currently doing some really interesting testing for that. One more example. In 2015, hackers were able to control the brakes and accelerator of a Jeep that had online connectivity, and in 2016, other hackers were able to um, control not only the brakes and accelerator, but also to change gears in the car as it was driving, operate mirrors and windshield wipers, and many other parts of the car. Now, of course, I could go on for weeks with some really interesting hacking examples, but I wanted to provide these particular examples, though, to highlight the fact that hacks not only impact people's financial and other personal information, because that's what we hear so much about on almost a daily basis, but, you know, they can have also very real and possibly deadly consequences when such things as electric grids, vehicles, planes, medical devices, which I'm also working with a lot, and other devices are involved. So does this mean that all hacking is bad? Well, that's a great question, and certainly one that is hotly debated, and I have the perfect guest to discuss this with us today. I'm really happy to have a professional hacker on our show. Dave Cronister is co-founder and managing partner of Parameter Security. It's an ethical hacking, instant response, and computer forensics firm. Dave is an experienced ethical hacker and a forensic investigator and also an all-around information system security professional. Now, Dave appears regularly on Bloomberg TV, Fox Business, CNBC, MSNBC, and CNN. In fact, Dave appeared on MSNBC to discuss that claimed airplane hacking incident I mentioned just a little bit earlier. So, Dave, welcome to my show today. I'm so happy to discuss this hacking with you. Rebecca, thanks for having me on. Uh Oh, well, this is going to be an exciting discussion, I think, and pretty interesting. And, And, you know, I'm curious, though, before we dive deep into the specific hacker questions, can you let us know a little bit, how did you get into the information security industry? I always love to hear the backstories for how people got to where they're at today. Yeah, so I have been in IT for well over 20 years, and um, going through the typical route, you know, boy has computer, boy loves computer, and then, you know, getting into the field. Um, and eventually I worked myself up to a vice president of a bank holding company. And it was at that time that really the banking industry back in the late 90s um, were really starting to hit with privacy and information security. And it was then was the first time I ever had an auditor ask me, have you had a penetration test done? And um, the answer at the time was no, I hadn't. And, you know, this was a test to actually uh, see what is going on with your system now someone tried to defeat it and um, really couldn't find a 
good company at the time. And so in 2007, um, myself with my technical experience and uh, my wife, who was in marketing and sales, decided to start Parameter Security. So for the past 11 years, I've been doing this um, dedicated. Awesome. Well, you must enjoy it, obviously, if you started a a whole business around it. Now, what led you, coming from a bank background, to focus on the hacking when there's so many other, you know, domains within the information security space? I think uh, a lot of it just had to do with the fact that there really wasn't much out there. Um, The other aspect is, is that we're really assessors. We're testing the security. And for a long time, even even when it, it isn't just about confidentiality or um, integrity um, or availability, I, I've always wanted to find out from people, you know, they say, well, we're, we're safe. Well, how do you know? Mm-hmm. How do you know? And so uh, being a hacker allows me to be able to come in and just to be able to say, well, you say I can't do it this way, but this is but I'm going to try. Um, I think part of it, too, is um, I grew up with a police officer for a dad and a church secretary for a mom, so that really made me stay, you know, on the good side of everything. And, and I, I think there's a little evil me inside there. So the fact that I could go and pretend to be a criminal and do it legally and do it to help people uh, really, really uh, was has has been fun and it's been a you know it's been fun every day since then Oh, yeah. I mean, I can relate to that. Well, my dad was a superintendent of school, so not like a police yeah. officer, but kind of similar. But uh, right. I, I I could really relate to you uh, talking about how it's fun to do that because, like with um, hacking, I guess I've been doing testing with the various types of uh, grid devices, electric grid devices, mm-hmm. and, and it's just been so fun looking at the hexadecimal data coming over the lines and trying to, you know, figure out what it applies to, and then what you could mess up if you change some of that hexadecimal data to cause mischief, right? So, right, uh, All right. And, and you know, a lot of times, um, it, when you're starting to go through these, especially you talked about the different hacks going on, when you've... When you discover something like this, it gets exciting because at first you go, you think to yourself, no, this can't be happening. Or, well, maybe it's working the way and I'm wrong. And then when you realize that there actually is something wrong, and this is either I'm able to break into a building walking through the back door or I find a vulnerability in an application, then being able to, uh, during my testing, to go in and figure out how to exploit it and then being able to to fix that issue, um, it, it's exciting. You get a little yeah. flowing. Oh yeah, it's like you're um, you're an explorer in the digital world. You're the Marco Polo of security <laughs> problems that right. nobody else has discovered yet. So, um, well, tell us first because here's something that I hear a lot of people when they hear hackers, they automatically either think they're all bad or or they don't know what that means, or some of them think about life hacks, which are completely different things. But can you maybe provide what you view the difference is of white hat versus black hat versus gray hat hackers? 
Yeah, so, you know, really, uh, if you look at the definition of a hacker, hacker is someone that makes something do what it wasn't originally intended to do. And you mentioned Draper, who I'm a huge fan of, and I've been able to meet Me? a couple times. Uh, you know, he was able <gasps> oh, to go jealous. through. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get to meet some really cool people. Um, he, he went in and really. Hey, this whistle, you know, going to 2,600 hertz was, is, will make the phone system go down um, or allow me to get free long distance. And, um, but obviously, like you mentioned, some people start doing this a little more maliciously, and they kind of went to the cowboy way. So really, that's where the hats come in. You remember in the mm-hmm. old westerns, all the good guys wore the white hats, all the black guys wore the black hats, which always made me wonder why the sheriff didn't stick at the stay at the clothing store. Anybody with the black hat, you have to, you know, get. Yeah, um, see, so he's buying the hats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a white hat hacker uh, like myself, our job is we are hired by organizations to test their security. Um, we only get gained financially through contracts. Um, we're doing it within a legal um, con- contractual uh, manner, um, and we do it with the end game of making an organization a purpose person, an application, an environment more safe. A black hat, on the other hand, are typically doing it for personal gain, um, whether or not the law applies or or not. And, and like you mentioned earlier in the 80s, we didn't have a lot of them that were, a lot of hackers that were evil, malicious, but in a lot of ways, they were breaking laws, and they were black hats. So uh, you do see a lot of the black hat will be those that, well, maybe they feel like they should take down a network, or they may be doing it to gain financial um, benefit from selling someone's information or exploiting or, or blackmailing. And there's a few, quite a few black hats out there. And then, unfortunately, the gray hat hackers um, are somewhere in between. They may work in a security team, but on the weekends, they're kind of like Neo from the Matrix. They're going in and hacking. And a lot of times, there's really a shade of gray, different shades of gray in there on who's actually good or who's bad. Um, So we generally stick around the white hat, black hat. In the industry, um, when we're talking about white hat hackers, we'll use the term red teamers um, Mm -hmm. instead uh, because we still here at Parameter use hackers. However, there are a lot of organizations that automatically say that hacking's bad no matter what. So you may hear white hat hacker or red teamer. We do about the same thing. Okay. Well, and tell us, I mean, I gave a couple of uh, examples of some bad things that happened from a physical standpoint, just to show how, you know, you can go from digital to physical. But do you have a favorite type of example or two for when the malicious or the black black hat hackers did some harm, maybe not just physical, but, you know, financial or uh, from an identity fraud or even some other type of harm that that they may have done? Yeah. So one of the earliest um, attacks that we actually saw uh, was back in the middle 
80s. I want to say it was like 86, 87, and there was this young kid, um, Adrian Lamau, and he was uh, one of the inspirations for the protagonist for uh, Hackers, the movie, with Angelina Jolie, used to, when you would get into some of these systems, um, the biggest ones out there were the phone systems. And uh, you would have to back out the same way that you uh, came in. And when he was backing out of the phone system, and, and just remember, he wasn't doing this for malicious purposes. He was doing this to learn. He typed in the wrong command and actually took down AT&T's network for the entire northeast, uh, eastern part of the United States for three days. And um, it, it was one of the first times that they had ever had one person take out an entire uh, infrastructure that way. And, you know, that's going on 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sadly, I heard about um, his passing just, what, a day or two ago. So right. uh, yeah. that was sad to hear, too. Um, so can you tell me about some of your uh, own experiences um, as far as some of your mo- most or more notable white hat hacking experiences you know you talked about how kind of it is fun it's fun to discover things that have not been discovered before but have you had any finding through your hacking that has been you know really surprising uh, anything that sticks out yeah the first time i broke into a police station um oh. was probably fairly <laughs> eye-opening um, so was it your dad? Physical. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. This okay. is well after my dad had retired. Um, <laughs> so, again, one of the issues you do run into when you're not a security researcher but you're an ethical hacker is, is that a lot of what I do is, contr- is uh, kind of covered by non-disclosure. So uh, there's, there's so many cool things I wish I could tell, but, but a few of my favorites is the first time I broke into a uh, police station, the mayor and the chief of police wanted to see how secure their city infrastructure was. And um, I had a USB key with actually a key logger and um, a remote connection as a Trojan. So if someone would plug it into the computer, um, it would have given me access to that system as well as um, allowed me to see everything that was typing on that system. And uh, walked in, just pretended like I was lost, and then after I uh, found the communications area, I found uh, a couple computers around there, and I guess it was where the patrol officers would put all of their uh, reports in. I just dropped a USB key and walked out. And um, eventually, about 45 minutes later, I actually saw a connection. And uh, Mm -hmm. later on in the debriefing, I talked to the chief of police about it, and he said, I don't know what was more frustrating, the fact that you got in or the fact that I watched three of my police officers argue for 30 minutes about whether or not they should plug it in. (laughs) Um, That that was interesting. You know, we've, uh, we've, from physical standpoints, broken into banks, I've, gotten into major corporations, um, as well as finding zero days, that is, vulnerabilities that haven't, um, that don't have a patch yet. And uh, one of my first ones of those was actually a cloud infrastructure, uh, where the cloud provider, this was for anybody that wanted to provide cloud uh, services, so a platform as a service to their clients. 
um, the overall infrastructure software would actually send some information from my browser, and it would allow me with a simple program, a free program, to actually pretend like or spoof that I was a different user on that system. And um, within a matter of five minutes of logging into the system, I had access to the core administrator, which gave me access to every single virtual machine in that cloud infrastructure. Well, that's a pretty significant finding, <laughs> and you know it what you're. Just, yeah, so you you know what you've described there with the, what uh, I think a lot of people might recognize your USBs that you're dropping. Um, some call them honey sticks. So you know you're. I don't know if you call them that as well, but. It's uh, we just call them fun things to drop. I mean, we we fun have so things to drop. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we we have. We'll take Raspberry Pis. We'll plug those into yeah. the networks. Um, there's there's all sorts of different tools that we'll use. Uh, the most difficult part of this job is getting creative and getting someone to let us in. Well, and you're using a lot of social engineering as well. In other words, to our listeners, uh, you're manipulating people and uh, what they tend to, to do or, or their own emotions to get them to cooperate with you, right? Correct, correct. And it, and it really comes down to the fact, not that a, a person is stupid, but instead, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see a lot of times people say, well, social engineering happens because users, uh, humans are stupid. And it's really not. It's that we have emotion mm-hmm. and logic. And if I can get you to feel instead of to think, then I can exploit that and get you to do something you're not, wouldn't normally do. Yeah, and you know, most people, especially in a business setting, they're told, uh, a lot of uh, workers are told to help people. You know, if someone, if a customer needs help, is asking for help, uh, you give that to them, right? So you're kind of working to uh, exploit their training to provide good customer service and good care to the people who are in that environment. Right. And, and you know, we can use that in um, to our advantage, like you said. So one of the tricks that we started doing when we would, when we do social engineering, um, especially on site, it, it is technically illegal without a contract. So one of the things that we do is we keep the contract on our person and we call it our Ooh. get out of jail free card. And yeah. uh, we had a client that we had had for quite a few years and they had had security guards and we've gotten past the security they- guards. I'm just and getting so a, I, I hate to, to break you here, but we're getting it right up for where we have to have a hard break. So no can you hold on to that thought? I want to hear that that story, but we need to hear from our sponsors first. So, um, right. so sorry about the interruption, but now's a, a time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We're speaking with Dave Cronister, professional white hat hacker and co-founder and managing partner of Parameter Security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Contact me with questions or comments on this show at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We're speaking today with Dave Cronister, professional white hat hacker and co-founder and managing partner of Parameter Security. And I'm really eager to continue our conversation about hacking before our break. Dave, you are getting ready to tell us a real-life experience, and I, I wanted you to be able to tell it the, in full without having uh, to break for uh, our advertisement here. So can you please uh, start over again let us know all about this experience that you're getting ready to tell us about? Sure thing. Sure thing. Thank you, Rebecca. So what I was mentioning before our break was we were doing a a physical um, social engineering engagement and for a return client. And again, uh, it is illegal to do without a contract. So we do carry a uh, contract, which we call our get-out-of-jail-free card. And they had security guards, and we've passed them before using different means. Um, and this time, we wanted to try something a little bit different. So um, what I did is I actually created two of my two of the contracts, and one of them was the actual contract. And the second one actually had a little additional sentence on there. And so what Ooh. I ended up doing was I walked in, knew that this organization had done security awareness training and that it was going to be a little harder this time. So I walked in, started 
uh, got past the front desk and was immediately uh, flagged down by one of the security guards who started asking me where I was, what I was doing, why I was here, um, any sort of ID. And I knew at this point that he wasn't going to let me go. So what I did is mm-hmm. I pulled out the modified contract, which at the beginning said, my name is Dave Cronister. I'm with Parameter Security. I'm here to do a physical social engineering exercise. And if someone would catch me, they need to help me with that exercise. The security guard looked at this and said, what can I do to help? And for the next half an hour, (laughs) I had the security guard walking out and putting servers in my car. And I think I walked out with about $4,000 of old servers that were sitting down. So um, needless to say, he was a little frustrated uh, when he found out that that actually wasn't what he was supposed to do. Well, you know, that's tricky because there you took an actual piece of paper saying what you're doing were the the management at the did the management know that you were going to put that uh additional statement in there just to see if you could get that by they did not, and, and it was within, however, it was within the scope of work, but really it came down to him following policy. The policy okay. was if someone was not in the environment, um, if there was an unauthorized person, they were supposed to report back about that, and this person uh-huh. didn't. I could have uh-huh. very well just been someone off the street that, that showed some sort of contract yeah. like that. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's clever. That's really clever. Well, you know, talking about being clever, there's many new types of clever ways that the black hat hackers are uh, starting to use. And something that concerns me, and I want to talk with you about this a little bit, but I'm seeing more and more skimmers being used, not only skimmers in credit card readers and, you know, the standalone and even when you're up at the retail store right at the um, checkout counter, but also ATM readers, but those USB chargers now with the skimmers within them. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, have you done any work or done any testing or hacking to see about those skimmers and and how they're being used or anything like that? Um, So the way that a lot of these skimmers are used, and and again, due to the type of um, work we do, we'll deal with some of Mm -hmm. the, uh, not necessarily ATM, but some of the electronic machines you may find. Um, We've done testing on voting machines, um, some consumer devices. um, But when we found skimmers, uh, they're they're extremely simple, and and I think that that is the key here. Is is that a hack, um, or a, a stealing of your credentials of any style or your information is not always going to be out there in your face. It can be extremely. Um, just minute. And so a lot of those skimmers are battery operated and they're just magnetic card readers. Um, Again, this is the reason we're moving to smart chip. We're trying to get away from that um, using the magnetic uh, technology that's been around for 40, almost 50 years now. Um, as far as USB connections, it's all about convenience. And you know, years ago, I used to have an older gentleman who did not like technology that worked for me, um, or that I actually worked for him. And 
I would always try to explain security to them, and I'd say, listen, you have this big, long line, and on the left is usable, uh, usability and convenience, on the right is security. And understand, you can be wherever you want on that line, but the more usable and convenient it becomes, the less secure it is. And that's really mm-hmm. what we're finding with chargers um, that are out there in the public and, and public Wi-Fi. They're extremely convenient, but do you really know what you're actually connecting to? So, you know, again, um, we see a lot of these out there. Um, typically, I just don't take the risk. Or I may use, if I do have to use a public charger, use something like a USB condom, which is actually a device that will disable the data portion of um, a USB connection so that that way there's nothing that, that could go through it itself. Yeah, I, I use those when I travel, too. I mean, why take risk? And, you know, when you're traveling, like I, I've done a lot of flying in the past uh, three or four weeks, and it's always interesting at the airports to see how desperate people are, you know, to get a, an open USB charger. I mean, as soon as one person unplugs, you see people just flocking over there uh, to take take it over and just, I look yeah. at that and I'm yeah. thinking wouldn't that be fun to put a skimmer in there as a as a type of experiment just to see you know what you could do with it but I, I'm not doing that I'm not crossing that line but uh, I think that gets into gray hacker right, right. If I have. so um, but you mentioned about the devices so we are seeing so many IoT devices. We're seeing personal assistants. Those are all over the place. We're seeing uh, home security units, nests, and other types of devices so people can. Admittedly, it's important and it's great to see your home when you're away, but you have all these units just being implemented without really checking to see how many security controls are built within them. And then, of course, you've had the long-time fitness monitors. So what kind of testing and hacking have you done or have you done any types of hacking with these types of IoT devices that we're seeing more and more of? You, you know, I think really there the the biggest issue, security issue I see um, is is the collection and aggregation of all the data. Um, we're told that, you know, for example, I have a Samsung watch here that keeps track of all my steps, that keeps all this information on me. Um, where is it actually going? Where is it actually being stored? Um, we ha- we've had a lot of these IoT devices and, and um like you said, a lot of the startups are dealing more with the productivity instead of the security aspect of it. And um, they may be using an Amazon S3 storage uh, container that isn't actually locked down. Um, one of the most interesting um, talks, I believe, that I did was years ago, about two or three years ago, it was on um, finding data legally. And uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things I looked at was actually scanning FTP sites out there in the internet. And um, I was one day away from being able to uh, identify a zero day. Someone did the day before me. But what I found was a lot of the routers and your um, home, quote, cloud systems, when you would turn Mm -hmm. on file sharing, they would create anonymous FTP sites out to the internet. 
And so you may have this router that you plug a USB in to store all your sensitive data, thinking this gives me access to mm-hmm. everything on my um, on my network at home, but it gave everybody access to everything. Um, I'm revisiting that this year, and right now I just got done scanning the United States, and I think that there's still something about 80,000, 90,000 of those devices still creating wow. anonymous FTP sites. At the time... Um, there were quite a few doctors that offices that had um, people's credit card numbers, passport information, all sorts of stuff. And when I reported this to uh, some of the routers, they, uh, uh, some of the router manufacturers, they said, "You know, this really this is a feature. This isn't a security problem. It's Someone, if they want to, they can turn off UPnP." Well. Let's face it, there's a lot of people in IT that don't know what UPnP is. To expect your end user to understand the security implications becomes a major issue. Yeah, definitely a feature. Well, that's a good way to spin it, right? (laughs) This is a feature, our security vulnerability. But, you know, talking about that, I mean, discovering these vulnerabilities and, you know, letting the different organizations know about it and seeing how they react. That's always so interesting. It reminds me of that example I gave about the person, the security analyst who claimed that he was able to hack into the plane controls from the entertainment console. And I know I saw your um, your spot on MSNBC about that. I thought that was really great. But when you're, mm-hmm. you're thinking about what he did, what would you view him? Would you view him as a white hat hacker or would you view him as a gray hat hacker? Um, do you think he was treated fairly and how people reacted? Because I was kind of shocked how some so many just dismissed him without really considering a lot of the details, it seemed like. Um, I've met Chris. I know Chris um, who did that. Oh, and, great. Um, I, I, he is a good person. He did things the wrong way. And and just like you mentioned, um, a gentleman who was able to start and stop a car and change everything on the highway, that's actually someone here. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. He's here as well. He did that on a highway. Um, as security professionals and as ethical hackers, our job is to protect people. Um, Finding those vulnerabilities are important, but what would have happened if Chris had screwed up and taken a plane down? What would have happened if Charlie, when he was going after that, trying that car, had started, uh, had had caused a collision that could have killed people? Um, I would I, at that point, I would say that the way they did it was a very stupid way, and and I think looking back, some of them would agree with you that they weren't thinking correctly. Um, but they weren't doing it for personal gain, so I, uh, or, mm-hmm. or you know, for malicious intent. So I, I think that there's a little bit more of the gray hat in there, and just maybe as human beings, us not thinking correctly or, or thinking that our actions through. Well, I think it points out the importance if you're going to be a white hat hacker and you want to improve security by revealing vulnerabilities, it takes a lot of planning. I mean, you need to plan to prevent. Um, some negative consequences of what you're going to do with your test, right? So maybe you should have done it on an off-road, maybe a driver's learning course where there's nobody else right. driving at first or, or and so on. 
Right, and and you should understand the implications of what type of testing you're doing, and and I think that that's really where hacking got a really bad reputation back in the '80s, um, at '70s and '80s, is people were not thinking through their actions, and and there are quite a few people out there that we're going through. We are finding vulnerabilities. We're working with organizations. They're discovering them and you'll never find out about them, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the people that, unfortunately, we don't hear enough about. We always hear about mm-hmm. when someone does something stupid or does something malicious. And so the news is always talking about the bad aspects of hacking, not necessarily the quiet, good things that are happening on a daily basis. Yeah, I like that. I like the way you put that because that is important to to let those things be known. So so thinking about the good things, what would you say are the top three to five actions that businesses and other types of organizations need to do to really defeat the most prevalent types of hacker attempts or to defeat the most effective type of hacker attempts because I think a lot of times organizations focus too much on on compliance and and I you know compliance is important but you need to do full risk management which goes beyond compliance so what would you say would be the top 3 to 5 actions they need to do to help protect themselves from hackers Right. So the very first thing from a technical standpoint is to patch, 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 patch. Uh, we keep, I, I keep using the term zero-day vulnerability, and that is one where an exploit is created before the patch is created. Less than 1%, well less than 1% of all vulnerabilities or exploits are zero-days when they're created. The patch mm-hmm. is usually already out there. And so if you're patching, you're going to stop a major channel of attacks coming your way. Now you can focus on the social engineering, the malware, the stuff that there really is no uh, defense against. You need to have good policy. And, and again, when I started in this organization um, and working with Parameter, um, I would have told you that technology would protect you, and that's all you need. These days, no, you have to have a good mm-hmm. program. It is a technology is only a tool, so mm-hmm. y- you know you need to have your blueprints and or uh, to figure out what you're going to use those tools to build. Um, mm-hmm. And the third thing is is to lose the mindset that you're never going to get hacked. Uh, the simple mm-hmm. fact is is you will. Um, and so because of this, we need to look at defense in depth. If someone gets through one wall, we don't want them to have access to everything. You want to look at uh, breach insurance, cyber liability is what they use a lot of times. I, uh, mm-hmm. I don't like the word cyber, but they use it in the insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to use, look at your disaster recovery or your incident planning, uh, incident response planning. How are you going to ha- handle a security incident when it happens? Um, at this organization, I these days, unfortunately, uh, Parameter has gotten so successful with not only our hacking but our forensics. I don't really get a hack too much these days. I'm spending a lot of times going through organizations that just got hacked and showing them what happened 
and having to actually have small counseling sessions on you know your company's not going to go under it's a bad mm-hmm. feeling when someone gets hacked um it's a bad feeling when you realize as the business owner or as the employee that you could have prevented it with some simple process or just a little configuration change yeah you know i i still hear after all these years i still hear so many organizations not just the smallest and mid-sized but also some really big ones say silly things like well we aren't, why would anybody target us or no one's going to be interested in us? And I'm always trying to tell them, I anticipate you are too, that if you are online or if you have a computer system or if you're a business, you can be a target because targeting anyone is just a matter of running some simple tools the, from the bad guys, running their tools to, to do scans to see what's being unprotected out there, and it doesn't matter what type of organization you are, so you can be a, a, a target. It's just like someone that goes and robs a gas station. They don't go rob mm-hmm. the Standard Oil um, because they're against Standard. They they have a gun and they know that they can get money. Hackers are ha- they can be broken down into two groups: those that have a target. Now they have to figure out a way to get in, and those that have a way to get in, and now they just have to find their targets. That second mm-hmm. aspect. Those that have an exploit that they're just looking to go after someone, uh, that one is the bigger category. And so I mm-hmm. don't, I don't care who you are. You had remote desktop turned on, and I was able to exploit it. Now I'll figure out what I do with it. Maybe it's I'll have fun with you, and I'll just destroy your data and watch what you do. I may sell it to someone else, or I may use it to do illegal activities and have the FBI coming towards you. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's something that you you can't just assume I'm not a target. Um, it's going to happen to you at some point, and sometimes it's not why it happened to you, but what are you going to do, and how do you respond to when it happens to you? Oh, yeah, and you know your analogy is great about you know robbing uh, the store and so on, the, the physical versus the, the digital. There's so many organizations that are hit more than once. Once the hackers find out that you're vulnerable, they can come back and hit you again. I mean, you know, I live in Des Moines, Iowa, and there's a couple of the quick stores here. They've been hit by robberies. They keep getting hit over and over again. Why? Because they don't do anything to improve the security. And we see that with uh, digital crimes as well. We've seen organizations get hit multiple times by different types of hackers because they aren't you know, improving after they get hit. I think that's another thing that some organizations think that once they've been hit, they aren't going to be hit again because, you know, the the hackers have moved on. But I think it's uh, couldn't be further from the truth. Right. There's, there's, so, no, there's no major list out there that the hackers go and pick their victims from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoever but, uh, but, is out there. Yeah, but there are places, especially in the dark web, where they know who the victims, you know, have been, and it's like, oh, let's give them a try. We know that they, we got through to them once, and we might again. And 
you know, right. moving that to the general public then, what would – because this is another thing. So many people in the general public are also victims. If you're online, you can be a victim. So you have people who are constantly having ransomware. Uh, the general public gets hit by that. They get hit by scammers loading other types of software and malware on their computer systems. They get – phone scammers. So what do you recommend when you talk with the general public about how they need to protect their own information within their own homes against these hackers? Yeah, so uh, again, one of the big keys here is if you don't need it on your system, don't have it on there. Do you really need a copy of your social security number and a digital photograph sitting on your desktop? Um, If you have it on a USB drive that you can access within an emergency, um, that's going to keep me from accessing it um, at any time. Uh, Wiping your system, that is reformatting it, putting it through back to factory settings and then reinstalling your software. That not only from the system administration side of me is like, you know, spring cleaning and gets rid of all the old registry entries and bad processes, but if I've put some of that uh, malware on your system, it will wipe that sort of malware. Uh, mm-hmm. But most importantly, um, don't let the fear of being attacked dictate your entire life. Um, mm-hmm. The bitter pill that you have to understand is there's you're, more than likely your information is already out there. Um, if you want to wear the Fitbit, understand what it's collecting. Understand what someone can do with it and make it determine is that an acceptable risk for you. Um, don't just assume that because someone uh, said it's secure that it's secure or don't assume because mm-hmm. there may be a weakness in it that you should never use it. Um, use common sense in it and, and I think that you'll find that some technologies you'll find are a little too risky for maybe your personality and lifestyle where other technologies will help um, where the benefits outweigh the risk. Well, and I would add, too, the same advice you gave to businesses. Too many people don't automatically patch. They don't turn that on to patch their own personal systems. So I think they right. need to also do that. Um, you know what? We're, we're down here to the end of our hour. Can you believe we're already to the end of the hour here? And I love your spring cleaning analogy because today's the first day of spring, right? When we're, oh, when we're talking happy about spring. this. So. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think everyone listening should uh, take time since it's a, you know, we're starting spring now to go out and do some spring cleaning and uh, improve upon their security on their own personal systems. So, thank you. Thank you so much, Dave, for being on the show today. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing your insights and your stories. It was my pleasure. Thank you again, Rebecca. Thanks. And uh, also, I I want to remind people that I've been chatting with Dave Cronister. He is a professional white hat hacker and co-founder and managing partner of Parameter Security, based, as he said just a little bit ago, out of St. Louis. So I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. I'm pursuing my goal to help all businesses and the general public to be more aware of security and privacy risks and issues, and also how to mitigate those risks and better protect privacy. 
please tune in to my show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled time that's live and the first time that the recorded shows might be uh, on the air, you will be able to listen to the recordings. You can find recordings of all my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, and Player FM, in addition to the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. And also, please contact me for information, security, privacy, and compliance keynotes, providing classes, and for more information about my Symbus360.com security and privacy cloud services. You can also visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see what I'm talking about on CW Iowa Live morning shows. You can also contact me with questions at Rebecca Herald at RebeccaHerald.com. In the week ahead, please be privacy safe and also make sure you're aware of your data security. Until next time, goodbye and hope to have you come back soon. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.